Hi everyone and welcome to today's Angel Roundtable. We chose to make the roundtable a little smaller than usual, so you're only going to have me and Mark today. But we thought this would be a good match to be talking about how to construct risk-balanced angel portfolios. We did that specifically because our experience from last time, or the last few times actually, because we've done three of these now, has been that it is much better if we do this in a more interactive manner so that you can all ask questions. And for that reason, let's dive right into it right away. But maybe, Mark, before anything, tell our audience who you are just in a few words. In a few words? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, I started my career as an entrepreneur, uh, built multiple companies along the way. Uh, some were more successful, some were less successful. And over the past decade, I turned into venture capital. So I've been a VC, um, investing globally into early stage companies. And while I've been doing that, obviously, I, I gained the hybrid that I can do the same thing as an angel. So I've been starting angel investing like six, seven years ago, built a portfolio of roughly 30 companies, have a couple of fund investments, and um, then I actually went back to becoming a VC myself. So I jointly with my partner started Altitude, we're an early stage lead ticket fund investing into something we call the SME tech gap. And we focus on two um, main topics. One is automation and the other one is sustainability. And we prefer to be a lead investor. And Mark, tell me a little more about your own angel investing. How did you get into it? Tell us a bit more about your entrepreneurial journey, just for everyone to really understand where you're coming from and how you thought about your own portfolio development. Yeah, absolutely. So um, looking back when I started angel investing, uh, I obviously was very intrigued by the fact that I've been a VC. So I've been working with very uh, young companies, predominantly pre-seed companies and seed companies, so very early stage. And I, I really enjoyed working with these people, um, kind of co-building or helping them to, to build their products, go to market strategy, um, build their KPI dashboard or like anything around it, like all the stuff you do as a VC basically. So while I was doing that, I was uh, always constantly seeing uh, potential opportunities uh, where we invested or we didn't invest. And uh, I think um, the, the most triggering point for me to actually get started was I saw an opportunity which I've seen in Europe Back then, that was in Latin America, which I loved and said, hey, this will go fantastically well over here. So that's what I actually did as my first investment. And from there, I um, got more and more into angel investing because there were many deals I really liked as an angel. But as a VC, we simply uh, didn't do them because they didn't fit the thesis or they were too early or not in the right market. So I, I decided to uh, invest into these companies myself um, without uh, investing throughout the fund and the structure we've been working in with. So um, while I was doing that, I uh, actually looking back, that was very random. So I just saw stuff, I liked it, and then I started to deploy. And uh, I, I kind of uh, helped these uh, entrepreneurs with my network, my knowledge, and everything I could do. And in the course of investing after my third, fourth, or fifth investment, I, I kind of more and more got into the idea of like, how do I actually want to construct my portfolio? How much money do I invest? What's my preferable stage? What's the geography? Um, and what's the actual type of entrepreneur and business um, where it makes more sense for me to invest because I can add 
more than money. So my knowledge, my experience, my network. So my construction was rather like something which uh, I created on the fly. It was not there when I started angel investing. Mark, you've given us a great intro to how you've come into venture, what you're doing today, and how you've been thinking about uh, building out your own portfolio. But there's something very special about you, which is you've also advised a lot of VCs and also worked with a lot of angels and families about building up their own portfolios. So I'd love to ask you pure basics. What do you think of when I ask you to explain to me in plain, simple terms, what is a risk balanced portfolio and why is it important to me as an as a venture investor? Yeah, uh, totally. Um, well, in looking at how to risk balance a portfolio, I think one important aspect is to understand uh, that uh, you can't do the trick by just saying I'm going to do 10 investments or 15 or 20. You really have to th carefully think about what is going to happen if I put all my investments into a single stage. If I put all my investment into a single geography or a single currency, you can invest in euro dollars. Um, whatsoever. What happens if I invest into a single business model or like industry? So I think after all, it's very important while you think about construction and um, risk mitigation, how can you diversify your portfolio on different layers? So geography, stage, business models, and maybe even currency um, to make sure that the likelihood um, that you return less than one X decreases constantly. So obviously you think um, if you think about portfolio theory, and if you invest into 100 or 200 companies, even if you're the worst angel or VC investor in the world, the likelihood that you will return less than 1x is literally zero. Of course, because uh, if you just uh, throw money in the air and it, it kind of falls into the pockets of startups, you by nature will hit one or two outliers which will make up for all the losses you have got to that point. So the first part of the equation is mitigating risk so you return less than 1x, of course. The second part is, of course, you could just construct a portfolio of 100,000 companies. This will mean you will not lose money, but it means on the other side, you kind of draw a certain cap that you will not exceed a certain performance. So the other side is equally important to understand um, you cannot only play with the amount of investments you do after all. Um, what you have to understand is what are the other parameters which will drive your returns or will mitigate them after all. And um, this is what I'm playing with when I kind of speak with angels, when I speak with VCs or family offices. And this is obviously what we thought about when we constructed our portfolio at Altitude. What's important though is there's a massive difference between how VCs operate compared to family offices and compared to angels. So there's not a one size fits all solution for all of them to say, hey, this is how you kind of construct um, like a risk mitigated portfolio after all. Looking at what an angel does is, I think that the most driving parameters, of course, the size of the portfolio, that's one aspect. The size of your tickets, that's the second one. And then of course, um, where and how you invest. So stage, geography, currency, and business models. And if you want to go one layer deeper, and I think it's the most obvious thing, <coughs> as an angel investor, you likely go early. So pre-seed seed, that's the stage where you feel comfortable. That's the stage where you deploy. And this is rather driven by nature, because when you try to invest um, as an angel into Series A or Series B, nobody will take you too seriously if you put a 10, 20, 30, 50K ticket in a round, which is 5, 10, or 20 million. I mean, A, you will not get the allocation, Unless you're like a superstar, everybody knows you and you bring a superpower to the table uh, where everybody says, okay, I accept your 20K check or 50K check. 
So um, just going by the stages, um, you of course are exposed to tremendous risk. The likelihood that a company goes bust in pre-seed is higher than the likelihood in seed and series A, series B, and so on. So first of all, when I look at the construction side is, I would map the amount of companies I want to invest in over a certain time span, one, two, three, four, five, ten 10 years. And then I would think about how many of those should be in pre-seed, how many of those should be in seed, and maybe even in the bridge to series A. You want to say something? Yeah, I wanted to ask you, could you say a little bit about that um, venture diversification or, <clears throat> or, or temporal diversification and yeah. why that's important? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we're in a perfect time to actually explain that if you look into um, 2020, 21, 22 and 23. So in 2020, things were still quite normal, uh, was a quite pace, uh, valuations were going up and the activity of VCs and angels was quite high. Then uh, we had 2021 and 22. If you would have fully deployed 20 tickets in those two years, you would have likely bought into very high valuations, overpriced companies and uh, the likelihood that these companies will actually raise, I don't know, now, this year or next year is very high. You will actually see that, wow, there's a lot of flat rounds. There's a lot of down rounds. There's a lot of companies going bust because they can't raise. So if you would have done 20 investments, you would be probably sitting there and like, oh, venture capital is stupid. Being an angel is stupid. It doesn't make sense. I can't make money here. So vintage diversification is a very important aspect of being an angel. So you don't want to throw all your um, investments into one vintage. So one specific year, you might want to rather think like I should do two to four investments per year over the time span of the next five years, or six years or 10 years, depending on, how, on your liquidity and depending on your risk appetite, looking at your overall investments aside of venture capital. So going back to the example of what would happen if you would have invested 20, 21 and 23, uh, 22, well, you might be a little distressed on your portfolio just looking at the actual performance. And if you start to blend it with 23 and 24 as new vintages, we can currently see that valuations are coming down in pre-seed and seed and series A. You can see that there's a different type of um, startups out there you could potentially invest into. So this is another aspect of risk diversification, not investing everything into one year, because neither I, nor Andreas, nor anybody else can detect where we are in the state of the market. So in 2021 and 22, everybody thought the party will go on like this forever. Well, surprise, it didn't. So 23 was a different market. And most of the VCs and as well angels who invested heavily in these markets or in these vintages now look back and said, oh, I should have invested one year later with lower valuations, different types of uh, like startups and so on. And this is another aspect of um, the risk diversification. Yeah, and I will just reiterate <laughs> what I've said before. Please do not click the link that there's a lady sharing in the comment sections. I see a five or so writing that the link is not working. I thought this was free and so on. <laughs> Please do not click that link. It is a heist. So don't click the link. Mark, I have another question for you. Or maybe let's just pull up this graph here for everyone to see, because this is, of course, what underpins what Mark is talking about. Exactly the fact what we're looking at here is is, is a graph that's, that's it's from the angel list uh, uh, study from 2020. It's very broadly cited. But as you can see, you've got the number of investments on the bottom here and you're looking at zero down here and then the median IR over here. And then as the number of investments in the portfolio increases, so does the median IRR. 
So in other words, there's a very clear correlation between the number of investments and, and thus the diversification that you, that you have in your portfolio and the, um, the, the success you'll have from a pure financial returns perspective. Mark, this is pretty clear. I think most understand it. What you also said was you want to have that temporal uh, um, diversification as well. So don't put everything in just one year um, because you, you might be overexposed to an overheated market or you might be overexposed to uh, uh, founders that, that, you know, that come out in that specific time cohort. Um, and as an example, in 21, 22, we maybe saw a few too many that want to be entrepreneurs rather than real entrepreneurs. Um, so there's a bunch of things connected to the, to, to the time temporal uh, uh, consideration. There's also, of course, thinking about geo split and, and, and vertical split. And I'd love to ask you because if I am in Denmark, as, as I am, should I be doing 100 investments in Denmark only? Or, or or let's say I have a very good network here in Denmark. Should I be putting the majority of my 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 tickets in the companies that I have access to here in Denmark? Or should I rather say, okay, I make concentrated bets on the deals that I can access very well myself and that thus play to my own personal strengths and lower tickets more widely across Europe or or something like that. How do you think about that? Well, first of all, there's a small issue arising to be very realistic, uh, thinking about doing 100 investments. Even if you would only do 100 investments with 10K, that means you're deploying 1 million into venture capital over a certain time span, whether this is a year or 10, um, this is it's a different aspect. So I, I think you have a natural limitation of how many investments you will be doing after all. Most angels, which I know, which we work with at Altitude, um, have a portfolio of anywhere between 10 and 50 companies. And the sweet spot must be somewhere around 20 to 30. And by nature, if you invest over a long time span, like let's say 10 years, I mean, you, at some point you might peak with I don't know, 25 companies and the first companies after two or three years start dying. You will might be selling some companies. So by nature, uh, the, the, your, your, your portfolio will go down and then you will do new investments if you have any kind of um, returns. So uh, your natural limitation, what I'm trying to say is your money. So you will likely not do 100 investments. If you're sitting in Denmark like you, Andreas, um, I think that the first challenge would be, could you find 100 high quality deals you could do as an angel with your um, limited network? That would be already a very tough task. So what you're going to do and what you're going to see as an angel is obviously that when you start doing that, you're going to be um, on cap tables. You're going to meet other angels. You're going to meet other founders. You're going to be more actively engaged in the ecosystem. So all of a sudden you will realize that you find new access points into other informal markets or informal networks where you start to source deals. People will invite you into deals. People will send you deals. You, you will kind of engage with other VCs and they might share deal flow with them and you share deal flow uh, with them as well. So I think you will keep on broadening your network. Thinking about geography as a, a single aspect of your risk mitigation strategy as an angel, um, you should definitely invest into jurisdictions and, and markets which you understand. So that's that's one aspect. And of course, where you have the ability to source fantastic deals and get into fantastic deals. Would I be fully limited to um, Denmark? No. Um, just looking at myself, 
I have investments all across the world. I have investments from Singapore to Latin America to US uh, and Europe, obviously. Um, there are certain uh, regions where I don't have uh, any exposure. This is mainly due to the fact that I don't get the deal flow I would like to. And on the other side, I just understand these markets, um, such as Africa. So to answer your question uh, in a single sentence, I would definitely not only invest into Scandinavia or the Nordics. I would try to maybe start there because that's the market you, you think you understand, you feel comfortable with, where you have your networks. And the moment where you broaden your network and um, get access to other people which can send you deals and um, which could fit your thesis, then you probably start opting towards investing maybe more in Central Europe or the US or Latin America, wherever your network becomes stronger, where you have access to great deals. And um, I think it's a main aspect of um, risk diversification. So there's macro risk. I mean, who knows if Denmark is going to do super well in the course of the next five to 10 years. I hope it will, but you never know about infl inflation, currency, uh, how the macroeconomy is going. So there's multiple aspects why a certain region could be super distressed while the country next to that region is doing fairly well. I mean, take Turkey, for example, and then take Europe. We're so close. It's a complete different market. And the companies over there might be super distressed just because of inflation and the currency. So it's very risky to, to focus only on one single country um, when you think about your portfolio construction. Could you share with me, Mark, one when you're then thinking about going to these newer markets that you don't already have that great access to, how do you first take that step and, 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 and what have you seen being the most successful? Yeah, well, for me, it was very easy because um, back back in the days, I was working in Latin America, so I had access to lots of founders, to entrepreneurs, to to other VCs, so I had a very active deal flow. Uh, I, I saw lots of good things, and uh, for me, it was quite simple because it was just there. Um, thinking about how would I enter this kind of market would be super tough. I mean, I have to build a network, I have to try to understand the market, and the VC market itself as an um, ecosystem works completely different than here just looking at how people invest using a safe. This is very uncommon over here in Europe, over there it's very common. Or how people kind of invest in terms of in which jurisdiction. They have offshore entities, you invest into this entity, which is a holding structure, and then you have an um, entity which is in Mexico or in Chile or somewhere else. Another thing um, which uh, I didn't have on my radar back then was, um, for example, FX. If you actually happen to invest in Mexican pesos, for example, and then you have to turn these in dollars or in euro, and uh, like 10 years ago, the, the FX course was a very different one. So you lose a lot of money, but just changing back your money into the original currency where you have your cost. So these are things um, you, you learn along the way and you try to assess while you, you are exposed to the risk. But going to markets which are very far away, you should have like very reliable people you like to invest, which are on the ground, which know the market, which understand the risk in order to kind of add this to your portfolio. And you can imagine this um, such as um, like a portfolio of listed companies. Um, you want to have like emerging markets, you want to have maybe some bonds, you want to have this and that in order to, to, to find out a mix out of risk and potential return. And if there's markets which yield a high return potential, you might have them in your portfolio, but they're surely an underweight. You're not going to throw all your money into Latin America or Southeast Asia or Africa just because you think it's going to be great markets in the 10 years. Another, another question, Mark, that I have is on this pursuit of diversification. And for many, it's also a pursuit of access to deals with, with lower minimum tickets in the sense that 
if if you are building a portfolio of 30 and you want to get there somewhat quickly a lot of people or a lot of angel investors will tap out quickly if they have to put 20 30 40 50k um so so one thing that we of course have or that that exists in the us that's making the angel ecosystem incredibly strong and versatile there and and really allows angel investors to very quickly build up a diversified portfolio is angel list mm -hmm. in europe we have at least two players that are very much doing that which is odin odin and 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 also uniborn that we're seeing coming out of estonia yeah. um and, and and they have a bit of that community uh community play of giving access to to deals via a broad platform and i'd love to ask you mark how do you how do you think about those platforms and how do you think about you know an angel investor in france or germany or denmark thinking about going on those platforms and investing well, well first of all me personally i love these kind of platforms uh because they start to democratize venture capital uh people who don't have access all of a sudden have access to this asset class and i believe it's a fantastic asset class if you do it um, over a certain time span, um, with a certain knowledge and uh, a certain risk appetite, you can make a lot of money or you can lose a lot of money. Um, and it's, it's a lot about luck. Looking at the platforms themselves, I mean, if you don't have the network, if you're coming from a complete different industry and you think about starting to, to do angel investing, it's a great way to get started. Um, I mean, you see deals, you can follow people, you understand how they actually build their thesis, what kind of things they invest in. And moreover, they disclose um, how they're investing, why am I investing to these companies, what are the things I've been looking at, what I do I assume is a risk in this company. So for, for most of the people, it would be um, a very interesting way to learn to get into this asset class. What do they look at? How do I assess a deal? And why is the deal good and why is the deal bad? And understand the fundamentals of um, angel investing or venture capital per se. On the other side, it does as well have um, like lots of downsides. I mean, it's adverse selection. You're following somebody, it's hard for you to assess whether this is a good investor or a bad investor. People claim, I don't know, have a 6x or 10x portfolio. Yes, this is a snapshot of a certain moment. This portfolio can go bust one year later. So I'll give you an example. People... Yeah. And, yeah. and we've had this conversation also, I think, in our last, in, in, in our last uh, uh, webinar where we pointed out exactly the, you know, we spoke a lot more there about diligencing VC managers and 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 when you're diligencing a syndicate lead, it's very much the same. Even though you're only picking one of the companies, so you've of course got exposure to a single company. They're not the entire portfolio, but there are definitely still people or syndicate leads that 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 are are, are putting a, a few too many feathers on their hat um, compared to to what's actually fair and 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 compared to what an, a sophisticated LP would, would buy. Yeah. One example is, of course, you know, or, or you put it well always, Mark, when you say it's it's about track record attribution, um, meaning you might have had some type of professional exposure to a deal when you were in a VC firm or maybe you invested as an angel with, with you know, in a syndicate with other angels, but you did not source the deal, you did not do anything there, you just put the money in there. It might then look great because you can say that you've got a 12x or 20x or 100x return. But all you did was say, I'll join Jason Calacanis' syndicate on AngelList. That doesn't make you the smartest person in the world. It just means you put your money with a smart guy. 
Um, so, so in that sense, really be careful when you're tagging along with a syndicate lead or even a venture fund. Don't just take it for granted that when they say they have 7x or 15x or whatever, that that's necessarily true. Mark, I see you grinning, so I'll let no, you No, 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 I, I fully agree. You, you, you're nailing all the points. I think a very good example to make this a little more haptic so people understand why I'm saying this. People can say, like, just if I tell you abstractly, hey, I have a track record of 10x. This is great. You will say, wow, you're an outstanding investor. If I tell you at the same time, I've done maybe 10 investments, nine went bust or eight went bust, and two were left in my portfolio. One was Gorillas, and the other one was tier one, uh, tier mobility. Well, if I would have told you this two years ago, you would say, hey, Mark, you're the most brilliant investor. This is fantastic. You have a 10x portfolio. This is great. And now I look back, and it's like my 10x portfolio is valued at zero. I wrote off eight, and tier didn't go well, and Gorillas didn't go well, and lost money there. Here. So my portfolio's value is exactly zero. So it's very difficult to assess um, the quality of a portfolio what matters after all is how much did you realize overall? And the second aspect of um, these platforms is, well, um, you pay a price. So you either pay a carried interest or you pay an additional fee. And this goes naturally off your return or IR. So these platforms are great to get started. But at some point, you will probably detach unless you're very lazy and say, no, I just want to throw my money into like a couple of um, buckets. And I think these are smart people and I rely on them. I'm very happy to pay them carry or some fees. Then it's totally fine. But you will learn along the way that these fees will eat your return. So um, that's the problem. Uh, and, and you will detach and you will start doing investments by yourself and uh, you will do due diligence by yourself. You will uh, get to know these people offside of these platforms and build a portfolio not necessarily only based on this adverse selection approach of I follow people on a certain platform where I think, hey, they're smart investors or better than others. Mark, now let me ask you a question here, which is, so normally when we talk about portfolio construction, it's very much the hard math uh, in the sense that you're looking at the statistics, like the one I provided just before, that you can see that you want this number of, of, of companies in your portfolio and so on, and you want exposure across, you know, geo sectors and time. But there's another thing which goes into into portfolio construction for any angel, which is of course, which ones will they be following in? And which ones will you be doing as the lead? And what we're often seeing, at least in Denmark, I think it's actually an issue across Europe, is it's very, very tough to find leads because it's a very time consuming task. I'd love to ask you more back when you were an angel, how did you think about leading versus following and and, and also maybe exp expand a bit on the, these two concepts just to make sure that, that everyone follows? You mean literally leading around as a lead investor or leading a syndicate um, or like... Leading a syndicate or leading a group or being the one that kind of, you know, says to the angel network, you might not be doing a syndicate, but you're still the person in your angel club or the person in a group that does the due diligence, does all all the checks and make sure that this is actually the right investment and also is the one with the primary primary responsibility towards the founders yeah actors. totally well there, there's a massive difference between like um leading or like kind of selling to your friends and other uh, angels like hey this is a great deal compared to being one of the friends and receiving it and trying to assess whether this is a cool deal or not so looking back when i started i was the 
probably the most passive one. I was the one receiving it, looking at it and saying, hmm, I, I think this makes sense. This is a cool deal. Maybe I want to put my money. And sometimes I did and sometimes I didn't. And it takes quite some time to get to the point where you are the person receiving the deal very early. Um, this can happen because you have this great network or maybe you're a very exposed person and people are like, hey, this is a cool guy for SaaS or marketplaces or e-commerce or any kind of, I don't know, AI-related topic. I would love to have this guy on board. They approach you very early. You see the deal. You like the deal. And then you think about, hey, who could I bring to this deal? Um, at no time in my life, I, I charged other people to come onto a deal. For me, it was rather like I want to bring people where I think they can add certain value to the company aside of the money they bring. And of course, it helped me because um, very simply, well, I built my own reputation. People invite me and I bring four other people, which might make all the difference in the world to build this great company. So looking back, I was just in a very sophisticated situation that I've been a VC, I've been an entrepreneur, started angel investing, so had some knowledge on how to do it, how to help these companies, had an angel and VC network, which I plugged in over time. And uh, so I kind of advanced from being a classic follower I receive a deal and then I do a deal with somebody who kind of spearheads this to um, actually seeing these very early and then inviting the people I like. And I think one most um, critical aspect about building this is, of course, your reputation. Another one is track record. Hey, have you been into very great deals very early? And the last one is, can you actually construct? So are you so trustworthy that people um, think about you like, oh, this person is a halo person? He does the deal or she does the deal. It should be a good deal. That's why I want to expose myself to this deal. And this takes quite some time. I think at least five to ten years doing this, being a very exposed person in an industry or a certain sector with a certain knowledge. Otherwise, I think it's going to be very tough to kind of convince people into that. And as a matter of fact, um, if it's people putting two and a half thousand or five thousand, it's not going to be relevant because you have to manage this, you have to do trust agreements or create an SPB. Getting the people to a point where it's relevant enough, you put, I don't know, yourself maybe 10, 20,000, and then you collect another 100,000 from people, which I built multiple times. Most of the time, I bring more money from people which I know than I actually put my own money. Um, this is just like, it's trustworthiness over time. And uh, the most crucial aspect to get trustworthiness is access. So. You have to have the access to this great deal. People have to like you or know you or uh, think you're the right person to invite into this deal. And this is just next time. Now, Mark, I'd love to ask you, and, and I, I'm, I'm shifting tempo a bit here because I want to ask you about how to adapt your, your strategy to market changes. And I think that we've seen just now <laughs> that we've gone from a, from, from a bull market to a bear market. And the unfortunate consequence for many has been that they've actually pulled entirely out of the market. Um, and it's something that, of course, all VCs who are also out there fundraising for their own funds and seeing seeing this pullback would, would caution against and say, don't do it, don't do it, because now is actually the best time to invest. Um, but I'd love to ask you, Mark, how do you think about as an angel, because you also invested through this time as an angel, um, because you, you've only just raised the fund and, and, and are doing first first closing now. Um, so you have invested through this time as an angel. So my question would be to you, how did you adjust your investment strategy as an angel through this time of bull, bull to bear yeah. market? Um, 
I'm, I'm going to add some meat to the bone, uh, thinking about how I see the world, especially when you put it in this timeline, assessing market and trying to understand markets. So when I look at the market, I never see the general market. I try to kind of sequence the markets into industries. And um, I, one, one thing which I learned over time is like there's a concept of a Gardner's hype cycle. And this applies very well. Uh, think about AI, you know, or think about Web3. It's actually even a better example. It has been massively hyped in 2001, uh, 2021, 2022. And all of a sudden, like investments dropped by 80, 90% into Web3 related topics. Why? Because this kind of industry has to mature. So the hype cycle went into the peak in 21 and 22. And now it's like all the way down, uh, like reduced by 80, 90%. And now it actually matures. and in one or two years, we will see real use cases for crypto, for NFT, for um, metaverse, for anything which is related to Web3. And then all of a sudden, it will pick up again. So um, looking at markets, very hard to time market to understand where are we in this hype cycle. Same applies to AI, by the way. So it was massively hyped, then it drops, everything is cooling down, everybody's like, okay, what are the actual winners? And then you see the real use cases and then you're going to invest into them. So one thing which I adopted in my investment strategy very early, I never jump on hype topics in general. So hype topics for me um, back in the days was, uh, uh, I already mentioned them, gorillas. I said, this doesn't make sense, not going to make sense at no times on the unit economic base, not going to touch it. I was right. I could have been wrong. Some people made money, lots of people lost money. Um, but I decided back then, it was an active decision because I saw, saw most of these deals. I'm not going to touch them. Same applies for tier micro mobility. I said, no, I'm, I'm not going to touch these deals. I don't believe they will work at no point um, based on a new economic basis. Um, yeah, this is very, this is very interesting, Mark. And I, I, I want to bring that up this point specifically. And I want to also get your perspective on that. It, and, and, it's not as much portfolio construction as it's it's strategy or tactics, um, but you've got these cycles and you for sure can see when we have spaces in VC that are hyped, then it, it kind of gets to be less about the sustainability of the business necessarily, as much as it gets the ability of the business to raise subsequent rounds. And as an early stage investor, very early stage investor as an angel, you might sometimes not stick along for the exit, but rather say, or for the IPO or, or, or final final sale of the business, you might just say, I'll, 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 I'll tag along for three or four rounds. Um, and then I'll be very happy to come out at, at Series A or Series B, which in most of these cases, had you done tier, had you done gorillas, had you done hopping, would give you phenomenal returns. Yes. What are the pros and cons of that strategy? Do you think that it's viable? Because I think that anyone could see the names back in Gorillas and the names back in Tier and Hopin, that if you could get access, they only went one route. Whether you believed in the unit economics and sustainability yeah. of the business, you could definitely see that play be something you would want to do as an angel yeah so what, do you, what is your take on that type it, of it's a fantastic question and i actually love it because um being an angel is wonderful and it's awful um because you have literally no determination so um some people say you're in a driver's seat that's the entrepreneur some people you're next to the driver's seat or at least in the car these are the vcs and you know what you are as an angel you're not even in the car you're just watching the car so you have literally no saying and this is this is a problem it's a problem on two sides. The first one is if you enter a company very early, everybody's like, mm, 
Nobody knows, is this company going to work or is it not going to work? Most of the companies go bust. That's fine. You write them off um, and uh, you go on with your life. There are some companies which work well and there's two outcomes on a well-working company. Scenario one is this company goes tremendously well in series A, a massive investor comes in and say, this is a cool company. I'm going to put 50 million into that company, but let's clean the cap table, everybody with less than, I don't know, 0.5%, 0.1% small angels have to be either pooled or they have to leave the cap table. We're going to buy them out throughout the secondary transaction. So you're sitting on this gold nugget, which is probably the best asset in your portfolio, and you have to leave the party before the party gets going. That's awful. This is your 100x return case, and they make you leave the cap table on 10x. You will still cheer. You will say, hey, this is fantastic. I made 10 times my money in, I don't know, four or five years. This is outstanding if you look at it from an IR perspective. Nonetheless, it could have been a 100x company, but you have not um, the chance to stay in the cap table. The other one is you actually make it along the ride and this company works well and you stay on the uh, board and then you have the choice to do a secondary because you can choose. So not all the VCs are so aggressive that they force you to leave, but some will give you the opportunity. And then you're going to ask yourself whether it's the right time to, to actually leave the company. And here, uh, Hopin was a good example. Gorillas was a good example. All of them, they had a peak on three, four, five, ten billion valuations where, they, where, where good angels might have the opportunity to kind of leave the cap table. If you ha would have done that, I mean, this is a home run. Uh, you, you, you nailed it. You made everything right. But the thing is um, about people and uh, especially about angels, you become greedy and you think, no, it's 10 million, billion is not the peak. It's 50 billion. I'm going to make 50 million out of my 20K uh, check investments. I'm going to wait yeah. until you realize the company two years later went bust and you didn't see a dollar. Um, so and, this, and, this, and this, just to add, add a note to that, this is if anyone is following the, 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 the LinkedIn Twitter or the, or sorry, the, 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 the VC Twitter, the VC LinkedIn, you'll see a lot talking about DPI uh, in 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 contrast to TVPI, which is an expression of, of people wanting to see what has been distributed, uh, meaning have you been able to actually sell your stakes when they're good so that you're converting paper money to real money. And and and, and that is where many VCs were, as, as Mark just said, maybe a slight bit too greedy and, 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 and thought that the party would continue forever. Um, and, and, and some of those that have been the very, very biggest winners in, 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 in 2020 or through this boom were the ones that said, we're going to get out now because we don't think this is sustainable. At some point, we're going to see markets, you know, the, the, the public markets not saying, let's pay 50x the, uh, the, the revenue, but rather saying, let's pay 10x but not on the on the revenue, but on the actual earnings, um, and 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 that's where we are today, right? And 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 there is just as big importance for an angel to be considered about when should you access, exit as 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 it is um, uh, for VC. Um, we're just seeing it a bit less often spoken about. I think. And uh, one one interesting learning is I, I remembered very well because uh, one of my former colleagues still makes fun of me about that. When I started angel investing, I said to him, hey, look, when I have a company and the company stands at 3x and I have the opportunity to sell, I will sell. Well, I was naive. Yeah. Of course you don't. You, you sit on this company, you said 3x, come on, what am I going to do with, I don't know, a 10k investment and 40k? 
this is not going to pay back my portfolio. It's not going to make me rich. I can't retire. So you're like, hey, this is a cool company. <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to stay. You're never going to sell. The second aspect was, well, you can sell. It's like you can sell if somebody offers you the opportunity. It's not a liquid asset where you just push a button and get your money back. So obviously, I was very wrong with that assumption. And uh, if I could delete that assumption from the brain from my former colleague, I would. Um, because that's not how venture capital works. It's a parallel approach. You have to have this one tremendous outlier in order to kind of, you know, have this very robust portfolio in terms of returns. Mark, I just uh, wanted to share with uh, everyone on the uh, screen here that Victor sent some love and says you're great at knowledge hey, transfer. Great guy. <laughs> uh, another, we got a question in that I wanted to just bring up because we just spoke about the different the different sectors and 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 verticals that you can invest in. And and Shermin Ahmed Khan asks, does your portfolio include green slash sustainable businesses, and how do they contribute towards risk diversification and improved returns? If I were to just say something on that note from my own perspective, I look at all verticals as being equal when I invest you know, from, from a profit perspective in the sense that I am looking to see if there are and, and, and which technologies within those sectors, we then have those tailwinds. And then that is where I want to be, be, be putting my X. Um, and, 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 and clearly right now we have very solid tailwinds in, in, in green and sustainable businesses. So 100% for sure that's the place where I'm putting my, my, my ex and, and, and my perspective or take on, on venture investing or angel investing a bit different than most in the sense that I, I choose to say I, I put my money with, with, uh, with fund managers first and then afterwards I follow on or, or I co-invest with them because people like Mark, so Mark is, is one of the funds we've invested in Altitude. And, and, and I know that Mark knows a bunch more about the SME tech gap than I do, and he has much better access than I do. So if I help Mark along his journey as a, as, as a venture manager, then I'll be able to, 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 to both invest with him afterwards, but also in the very first deals that they do, because Mark is going to say Andreas does bring something to the table. So for that reason, I'll invite Andreas into this specific deal as well that I know Andreas will be hyped about, but also be a, a value add to. Um, but Mark, now uh, share share with Shermin and the rest of yep. us how you think about this particular vertical. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's well, it's it's a very hyped vertical. So within the past two years, we've seen lots of money going in. And um, here again, I'm I'm trying always to to put things into context. So when I see a certain topic, an industry coming up, uh, like lots of money going into a certain vertical, whatsoever, I try to understand why this is happening, and I try to understand what the actual consequences. And uh, what I mean by that is like, what do I think this market is going to look like in 10 years? Um, referring to your question, whether like um, green and sustainability businesses should be a part, me ask, asking you as a VC, absolutely. It's part of our thesis. It's part of our playbook. And uh, we're going to invest a certain or big part of our fund into sustainability. But um, if you would have asked me two or three years ago, I would have said probably no. The first layer is very hardware driven, so it's very capital intense. You need a lot of working capital, a lot of patience, a lot of R&D. And then usually the second layer is platform based or software based. That's where we are right now. So for us, it's a big part of our thesis because we believe the first heavy lifting has been done. 
And now the software layer will create efficiency, productivity, margin optimization, and it will kind of um, leverage on the first basis, which was the hardware. So it's a good timing to do that right now. It would have not been for me at least a good timing to do it three or four, five years ago. Um, me being an angel, if you would have asked me six, seven years ago when I started, no relevance at all. Is it highly relevant today? Yes. Because just looking at startups which don't duly comply with anything which is ESG, diversity inclusive related, or sustainability per se, it's going to be very hard for them to raise money from funds because for them it's mandatory to kind of not only screen that but operate in a certain manner and invest to companies which have a certain like, you know, check boxes which they can check and say, okay, this is something we actually believe in. So I think it's becoming, it is very important right now, it's becoming more and more important but on the other side, um, and we spoke about this earlier, just putting all your money into sustainability and into uh, green businesses can work very well. But of course, you're exposing yourself to a tremendous risk because especially when you look into this industry, it's highly driven throughout regulation. So a regulatory environment can change from one year to another. Um, and this might put a company at risk or it can actually bankrupt the company. And uh, here again, referring to something I, I said earlier, Gardner's hype cycle. I mean, it's a very young and early industry, especially in the context of software. It's very hard to say where like this industry is going, where are VCs going to focus, where's private equity going to focus, what is actually going to be um, financially um, uh, great in five or 10 years. And I think you have a fundamental question you have to ask before, whether you are a capitalistic investor, you want to invest to make money, or if you're an impact investor and you say, look, I don't have to have the 30% IRR, I'm totally happy to maybe break even or get my money back, but I want to do something good. So your risk return profile is a complete different one. Your risk appetite is a complete different one. Your measure is going to be relevant towards ESG, diversity, inclusion, the impact on carbon emission, or whatever you want to measure for yourself to feel comfortable. So um, I think after all, it's not easy to answer. For me, if you answer, uh, ask myself, it's part of the thesis. I believe in it, and it's going to be highly relevant in the course of the next 10 years. Would I put all my money in there? No. Yeah, Matt, I could not agree more. So now we are coming to very close to the end of this. And for that reason, Mark, I wanted to just give you the opportunity to kind of summarize your thinking around portfolio creation as an angel embarking on, on, on the journey as, as a venture investor and, and, and do that from first from the perspective of someone never having angel invested before. Yeah. And then after, uh, from the perspective of someone with eight very concentrated bets, and and that might be within one vertical or one geo or whatever, but tell me, how would you proceed from here? Yeah. First, start with the, uh, the simpler one, which is how do you start from a green field? Yeah, so if I would be an agile virgin, um, I would reverse engineer what I want to be in 10 years. So thinking about my portfolio, thinking about the thesis, thinking about the construction and the risk um, uh, appetite I'm having, I would say, where do I want to be as an angel in 10 years? I want to have a portfolio of 10, 15, 20 companies. I want to have uh, deployed an amount of, 
I don't know, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 per company, summing it up to 10, 20, 30 companies. So I'm going to invest, I don't know, half a million over the next 10 years into a certain amount of company. And then I would actually take it by the year and try to understand how many investments do I have to have? How much liquidity do I have to put into this asset class on an annual basis? And then I would actually break it down into the risk buckets we spoke about. What's the stage I feel comfortable investing in? The stage determines your risk profile. Pre-seed, more risky than seed, more risky than series A. The second one is, what's the geography? Is it my home turf? Like, I'm from Denmark, I'm going to invest here because my network is limited and, and then I'm going to broaden it and invest into Europe and other markets. And then I would try to understand um, where's my expertise. I mean, you have to decide very early whether you're going to be a very passive angel investor. I give you my money, just send me a reporting and that's fine. Or if you want to be hands-on and sell your superpower. So I give you money, but look, I have access to networks, I have access to VCs, um, I have knowledge, I can help you like operationally, I'm a specialist in marketing, whatever it is. Um, and how much time do I actually want to invest into these companies helping them? Because you actually have an intrinsic motivation. It's not mandatory to do it, but it will definitely sharpen your profile and it will increase the quality of your portfolio and um, the access of companies you will see after all. And um, last but not least, I, I would try to understand, uh, like, am I willing to lose all my money to take the big shot? Or do I want to build a risk balanced portfolio after all to make sure I'm not going to lose money, but I still have um, the potential upside of returning 10x on my portfolio. So to summarize it in one sentence, reverse engineer your angel portfolio. Think about what you're going to have in 10 years. How much money did you deploy, in which stage, in which geography, in which industry, and how many companies? And Mark, tell me, how do VC funds fit into this? Because I am, and let's do a full disclaimer here, I love investing into funds, so obviously I am the poster board for that. Mark, somewhat as well in the sense that he is uh, building a, a venture fund that's very much tailored towards towards angels as, as LPs as well. But Mark, let me just know your perspective on, on venture funds and how they fit into uh, into an angel portfolio. Yeah. Well, first of all, it has never been easier to invest into a venture fund as an angel or as an individual per se. So uh, looking a couple of years back, it was very tough. You either had 200,000 and you're qualified or semi-professional professional investor, then you could have done it or you're simply not. If you're not, well, no chance. So uh, looking at uh, the, the opportunities and possibilities and how to access funds these days, um, looking at structures like Bob and like Odin, like Bunch, name them all, or European VC, who, who might give you access to these uh, funds, is a complete different one. They do all the pre-work, they assess them, they disclose how they assess them, why they invest, who the managers are, what their track record are. So there's lots of smart people out there doing pre-qualified work for you to kind of see whether this is an opportunity you would like to um, uh, take or not. Um, and if you ask me, and I'm, I mean, my portfolio is built like this, um, looking back, um, maybe it was not done on purpose, but aside of the investments I've done as an angel into companies, I have multiple fund investments because they give you lots of downside protection in the portfolio. And here again, always think about the underlying assets you're going to have. As an angel investor, you're maybe going to do 10, 20, 30 investments. But if you invest into one single fund, they will have another 20 to 30 investments or even more. So the underlying structure of your portfolio will dramatically increase. So think about it. If you would construct a portfolio and say, I'm going to do 20 investments, you should as well consider to do one, two, three um, fund investments 
maybe with a similar amount as your angel investments. So if your sweet spot as a ticket is 20K, you might want to put 20, 25, 30K into a single fund to get access to, to the deals they do, to get access to um, more knowledge, and of course, to diversify even farther. And by diversification, I mean the amount of companies, which is the underlying portfolio you actually have, direct investment plus fund investments. So I think maybe it's not the most crucial part on day one, but in the course of doing investments, you should um, definitely explore this opportunity to do couple fund investments. And this correlates even more if you have absolutely no access and network in this market. Maybe then this is even actually the step one to get into this market, to, to kind of build uh, your network, to meet other people, to understand how they operate. And then from there, you kind of um, tiptoe into the water of direct investing uh, when you see deals you feel comfortable doing. Yeah, uh, if I were to say anything on this, I would say there are more and more funds that almost operate their LP base as a angel club with a very high entry ticket. That high entry ticket makes sure that the people that are part of it are active and committed and 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 of a certain quality. And they spend the reason why I say that th these funds are very interesting for US Angels because they spend a lot of their energy, a lot of their time on on catering to this LP base making sure that the LPs are involved in what they're doing, that they get to see the deals that that, that, that they're interested in and that type of thing. Um, and and as, as Mark just said, some of them do syndicates for value-add angels themselves, meaning they, they, they actually orchestrate that. Um, others don't, but you might be able to form one yourself, meaning reach out to 10 people that you know also love the SME tech gap as an example, then reach out to Mark and say, together, we'd love to come in with a ticket of 250K or whatever. Would you be be willing to take us in? And then you'd have a conversation about all this, would, how all this would work. And, and very often, you know, VCs, especially in the car market, will not say no to money. <laughs> um, but of course, when you make that approach to a VC, you want to make sure that 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 you've, you know, you're, you're in conversations with the right type of VC, because there are VCs that just as an angel club are less active than others uh, when it comes to taking care of their members. Um, so definitely, this is an interesting path. It's the one that that David, my co-founder and I are, are, are pursuing on the back of EUVC, which is a a pure content plate, um, and 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 what we're seeing is that it's incredible, incredibly valuable because we already, out of having done four four of these syndicates, have an underlying portfolio of of more than a hundred companies, and that that of course allows us to to look into those and and, and understand are there opportunities that we're excited about, are there investments that we want to dive into together with the managers, and. And I think, to be frank, that we're getting as much out of these partnerships as we would from 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 any angel club. Um, so, so I would urge anyone listening in to 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 consider that strategy and consider whether you should be joining someone like us. I don't know of anyone else, to be honest, but I'm sure that you will have people in your own network that are also doing this, or people that would be excited uh, in joining together with you. Um, Dave and I are always here to have a chat about how to structure these syndicates. It's to be fair, pretty simple. Um, so, so we're more than happy to help you along your route as a venture investor. 
head on over to eu.vc. That's our website. That's where we put all our content. It's Europe's venture community. It's for angels, LPs, and VCs. And we want to thank all of you for joining us for today's webinar. And if there was something you didn't catch, we will put out an email with the recording of this together with a small wrap up, drawing out the core learnings and insights from this. Thank you, everyone. Have an awesome thank day. Thank you. Bye.